Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the very first episode of the Scientist vs. Zombies podcast. This week's scientist is a brilliant cook, an avid reader, and one of my dear friends. It's Molly Parrish. Hi, Molly. Hi, Emma. (laughs) Can I tell you a secret? Yeah. (laughs) On the weekend in lab, I've started wearing socks and sandals. (laughs) What kind of sandals? Like Birkenstocks? Um, Like sliders. But I, um, yeah, I was laughing at myself because I'm like, wow, I'm the old white guy walking around in socks and sandals on the weekend. That's okay. A lab that I was in at one point, um, my bench mentor had slippers that she would put on when she was in lab on the weekend. So I think the farther you go, it's like anything goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not at risk of dropping anything heavy on my toes, so I feel like it's it's okay. Yeah, I'm a supporter of comfiness in, in the lab space. Oh, for sure, for sure. Okay, well, welcome to the pod. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm really excited to be here as well. Um, so the first question that I'm going to ask everybody is just to describe your perfect Sunday. So if chores didn't exist and you owed no one anything, um, what would you do with your Sunday? That's a good question. Um, seeing as it is a Sunday right now, yes. I don't think I'm currently living my perfect Sunday, <laughs> but yeah, I can tell you what that would be. Um, I feel like it's it's weather specific. Like in my perfect Sunday, it's like very mm. nice outside, sunny. It's like in the 70s, maybe low 80s. Like I am a Florida native, so warm weather <laughs> does not face me. Um, and yeah, I feel like I would wake up and yeah, my partner and I would walk to the coffee shop near us and mm. get our favorite coffee and our favorite pastries and then do that for a little bit. And then we take the dog on a walk um, and then probably spend most of the afternoon like having some sort of picnic outside because there's nothing I love more like when it's warm outside than having a nice picnic and just hanging out. Wow. And then, yeah, probably spend the rest of the day, like cook something really like an exciting recipe for dinner mm. and just read some books, watch TV. Yeah, probably pretty chill. Have you cooked anything good recently? It's a good question. I feel like recently I've mostly been cooking just like kind of plain, easy weeknight dinner mm-hmm. type of things. Um yeah, I did make this recipe not too long ago, and it was like a mandarin orange chicken situation mm-hmm. um, with little garlic baby bok choy, which I had never cooked before, but that was really good. And yeah, I am always excited to find new recipes. Yeah, you're good at trying new recipes. <laughs> yeah, I have lots of bookmarks saved everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so as a scientist, how would you how would you identify yourself? Like what descriptors would you use for your scientific identity? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a little bit hard. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I'll try and describe as best as I can and it may be, you know, might have to morph a little bit as we chat. Um, 
But yeah, I guess officially, like in the most objective of ways, I'm a third year PhD candidate. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Recently a candidate as of November, 2022. That's very exciting. It is very Um, exciting. Yeah. So I am currently a graduate student, um, but yeah, ultimately a candidate. Very exciting. Um, But I would describe myself again, kind of broadly as a cancer biologist um, because I do study endometrial cancer. So part of that is I'm very, I would say passionate about women's health and women's cancers. Um, And so I think that is definitely a huge part of my scientific identity um, is being in the women's health space and being really passionate about diseases that affect women, but also just health disparities in general. Um, But yeah, I guess some more words to describe would be, I would say that as a scientist, um, I would consider myself to be a thoughtful and careful researcher. Um, I try and really connect everything that I do kind of back to just like the people that I'm helping, like patients, even though I don't directly interact with patients, um, people, and just trying to think about kind of the broader impact of my work. Um, so, yeah. I love that answer. <laughs> yeah. That's very nice. So when you're in the lab, what ways do you spend your time? Like, do you usually work with cells mostly? Yeah, I would say about 50-50 um, cell culture and then patient samples, not fresh patient samples, um, but kind of we have through our core, we can obtain kind of fixed patient samples, um, endometrial cancer patients. And so I, I would say it's about 50-50 cell culture and patient samples. Um, but these days, these days, it's a little bit more cell work. Mm, okay. I'm thinking, well, I need to get an Instagram going, but yeah. if there's like a pretty picture that you've generated, you can throw up on the gram just to showcase your science a little bit. I would love <laughs> to do that. Um, I, yeah, I'm in the department of pathology and laboratory medicine. And so being a part of that department, um, I do a good bit in the lab, kind of my patient sample work of some kind of staining and visualization. So I do really love the fact that I'm able to have like a whole aspect of my science and my project be very visual because I, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a very, like I'm a very big visual learner. And I feel like as cheesy as this probably sounds, like I really appreciate like aesthetics in general. And so I think <laughs> it's, I don't know, I think it's really cool to be able to incorporate that into my science. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think, um, just like figure generation and stuff like that. I always love getting to, um, tweak the aesthetics of what I'm showing visually. So, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> I totally understand. Okay. So outside of being a scientist, what are some identifiers you would use for yourself? Okay. This one is actually probably a little bit easier because mm-hmm. I have a pretty large amount of hobbies. Um, 
<laughs> so I was trying to figure out if people were going to find it easier or harder to talk about their scientific or their personal identity. And I think it's going to be very dependent on the person. Yeah, I think so that's something I'm interested person. to see. Yeah. Yeah. For me personally, it's probably easier to identify like outside of the lab. Um, and so, yeah, some descriptors would be, I guess, I'm a huge reader. Um, mm-hmm. I love to read for fun. I've started a book club. I'm a um, proud member yeah. of your book, yeah. book club. <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. Um, and then definitely I would identify with kind of home cook, home baker. Mm-hmm. Um, I love being in the kitchen. That's something I'm really passionate about. Um, also, <laughs> as again, kind of cheesy would be dog parent. <laughs> yes. Well, you yeah. have the sweetest dog. Yeah. Sweet little I, anxious girl. Yeah. I have a two-year-old kind of border collie mix named Suki and definitely being like a young person with a dog. Um, it's a huge part of my identity. You know, she yeah. takes up a lot of my time and I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> So yeah, I would say dog parent, baker, home cook, reader. Um, do you find big ones? Do you find cooking and baking to be similar to lab work at all, or how do you yeah. balance those two things for yourself? That's a great question. Um, my PI actually is like a huge home cook as well, and we have conversations about this pretty frequently. But I do find that like being in the lab and going through a protocol and doing an experiment to be pretty similar to not as much cooking as baking, um, because baking is pretty exact. Um, Like I personally, when I'm in the kitchen and I'm baking something, I like to have the not like the cups, but the gram measurements for whatever I'm baking. (laughs) Yeah, I have a kitchen scale and I like to weigh everything out. Uh, so I get like really exact measurements. And so I, I do find that baking is pretty similar to being in the lab. Like I always say to everyone, if you can, if you can do an experiment successfully and like follow protocol, you can like bake a cake. Yeah. Yeah. I always think that baking, I, it's, it's more of chemistry to me because it is very exact and like Mm -hmm. the reactions are really important. And then cooking is more biological to me, or it's, there's a little bit more room to feel it out by hand and adjust as you go, which is kind of how I am in the lab. Not necessarily everyone's like that in the lab. (laughs) No, I'm definitely like that. I think that's a really good analogy. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. It's kind of the same thing. Like when you're in the kitchen, like you said, especially cooking, it's like you're kind of like adjusting as you go based on the indicators. Um, and it's the same way in lab. Like you look at things by eye or yeah. by, you know, temperature and say, I might need to change this a little bit. And so I think ultimately they're both very intuitive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you have to know when to follow the rules and when to, you know, follow your judgment on things, which, yeah, yeah, I think that's always an exciting, fun thing to do. But it's hard if you're like, if you've had a long day in the lab, I hate coming home to cook because it just feels the same. And I'm creating another whole mess that I'm going to have to clean up again. 
<laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like whenever I grocery shop for the week, I try and have like one dinner recipe that's a little bit more involved. Um, yeah, normally that one gets kind of saved for the weekend. Uh, during the week, it's a little bit more, you know, easy, quick weeknight meals. But I do like to have one recipe a week that's a bit more challenging. Yeah. So beyond cooking, do you see any ways that who you are as a person outside of the lab influences or plays off of who you are in the lab or vice versa? Yeah. Um, I would say for for sure the biggest one is probably in terms of technical skills is yeah, like cooking and baking, I think translates just like the senses and intuition that you need for one really translates to the other and vice versa. Mm. Um, but I do think in general, being a reader, um, like reading for fun is really impactful on just like my personhood. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't have like one specific genre I read all the time and I do like to read nonfiction as well. And so I think that, I guess in my mind, it's like learning from everything that I read and like hearing about different perspectives is something that I actively take into my science life because I think there's a common misconception that people who are in science are kind of like awkward and antisocial, Mm -hmm. um, But as you and I know, like you have to network a lot and you have to, whether you like it or not, you have to talk to people uh, pretty often in science. Um, And you have to talk to people who are like vastly different than you sometimes. And Mm -hmm. so I think that being, yeah, like everything that I learned from reading, especially when I read books that are written by people who have a completely different background than me um like influences the way that I'm able to go into the lab and interact with you know my lab mates or my bosses um or just other people yeah yeah definitely does your love of reading translate to scientific papers um (laughs) to be honest not not really um I yeah I find like technical science writing to be kind of difficult. I I think that being such a big reader um, does help my vocabulary in terms of like writing, mm-hmm. doing science writing. I've, because I, I wasn't as big of a reader in my first year of graduate school. And then I kind of picked it up between my first and second year. And I feel like ever since I've introduced reading back into my life, it's made writing in lab like a whole lot easier. Yeah. Um, that, definitely translates but I don't know like science writing and reading is so vastly different to me than the books that I read for fun because ultimately I do like nonfiction, but the most nonfiction I read is either memoirs or like essay collections and so typically those they're still pretty um pretty fun like they're never super dry in the same way that science yeah. papers are. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a famous phrase that I'll, or I don't know if it's famous, but in my head it is because it's, I'm constantly saying it, but like every hour you spend reading is an hour spent learning to write. 
And I think that's true, like no matter what you're reading. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely been on my own. I don't love reading scientific papers, but there's some days where I can just get into a rabbit hole and want to read everything. But I'm my toxic trait is that I'm a skimmer. And so I'm like, (laughs) I just want to know the point that they're making. I'll read the abstract. And then that will make me have another question that I can go (laughs) find the answer to in a different abstract. (laughs) Yeah, I'm also a skimmer. But yeah, I love that. I love that phrase. I feel like something in terms of scientific reading that I didn't really think about or kind of realize until about a year ago is how much being a good writer actually matters for, you know, like how easy your scientific papers are to understand. Oh, yeah. I I think that like a lot of young scientists, I would read different scientific papers and they would be incredibly confusing to me. I was like, okay, well, this is just me. Like, I do not have the wherewithal to understand this. Like, this is my fault. But then my PI said to all of us trainees in a lab meeting one time, he was like, the reason why certain papers are hard to understand and some are really easy to understand is simply just because some people are really good at writing and some people are really bad at writing. And yeah, so I, I love that phrase because I do think that being able to write well, like even in a more narrative way, kind of matters for science. Yeah, for sure. And I think something I've learning, I've been learning is um, there's lots of different ways to write as a scientist outside of doing a PhD, mm-hmm. even though like most PhD students are doing grant writing and paper writing and yeah. more similar forms. There's a lot out there in terms of communication. Um, that's really exciting. Man, I had a second thought to that, but I forgot it. Okay, so let's let's just keep going. Um, So tell me about the first time you felt like a scientist or the first time you were kind of blown away by science. Like how old were you? Where were you? What were you learning about? Okay, that's a a good question. I would say, um, so a little bit of, I guess, background to this is that I started doing scientific research when I was, I guess, 19 in actually, yeah, 19, my sophomore year of college um, at Mercer University, which is where I did my undergrad, um, is where I started kind of in the lab. But yeah, the school that I went to was pretty small and um, there weren't graduate students or really medical students or anyone who's in the lab. So it was really just your PI and then some undergrads. Mm-hmm. So the work that I did there, um, I really liked it, but it felt more like an extension of kind of just like a lab class that I had yeah. for all my other classes. Um, and then I feel like the first time that I really felt like a scientist was the summer of 2018. So at this point, I would have been 20 years old. So between my sophomore and junior year, of college, I did a summer program actually (laughs) where I now am for graduate school in the lab that Emma. (laughs) Yes. uh, Not a coincidence at all. (laughs) Yeah. Emma is currently in, but this was before, this was the summer before Emma even started grad school, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we didn't cross paths oddly enough. Um, Yeah. You actually preceded me in my own lab, which is kind of funny. 
I did. Yeah. Yeah. That cracks me up. <laughs> but yeah. So I did this summer program, um, at UNC, um, in the lab that I'm currently in. And I think, um, that was the first time that I ever felt like a scientist and specifically, um, I was working on an assay to like measure certain kind of specifications of blood. Um, and so I was handling, um, not human blood, but mouse blood, um, myself and kind of doing these different assays. Um, and I think that was really the first time in my life that I can remember feeling truly like a scientist. Mm -hmm. Um, because up until that point, like I said, the research that I had kind of been doing for a semester back at Mercer, um, it, I was doing a lot of like making buffers and kind of doing more so lab chores. And this was the first time that I was like working with samples and generating data. And, you know, at the end of every week, I would make figures from all of my data. And, you know, just the, the idea of making figures was never something that I had ever done or never knew how to do. Um, and so I think that that was the first time that I felt like a scientist and felt like what I was doing was impactful. Yeah, that's great. I was just thinking it's such a good point that like the labs you do in undergrad just as part of chemistry and biology, it's so hard to uh, simulate real science in a lab setting. Like you can teach people techniques and different ways to measure whatever you want to measure. But if there's not like a novel scientific question it kind of misses the entire point of what being a scientist is. Like mm -hmm. you have an idea and you want to use the right techniques to test it and figure something new out. But a lot of times in those labs, I'm talking like school labs, not right. like yeah. um, research labs, you're doing something that there's an expected answer or it's not a new question. And you, it's very clear that everyone who comes through this class does the same thing every mm -hmm. year. And when you make the figure that's associated with the results, it's it just is very dry and it feels like there's one right way to do it. Yeah. And I think like being a true scientist or having a chance to truly do science, you get to, you know, design and be creative at so many points of the process yeah. that it is so different from what you get in a lab, but there's no way to replicate it um, for 100 students at a time, you know. Yeah, that was something that struck me my junior year of college after I had had this summer experience and kind of gotten a taste for what really being a scientist was, is that then my junior year when I kind of went back to college and was in these labs, yeah, it was like, there's one right answer mm -hmm. um, in these lab courses. Like you said, it's just, it's like the same thing semester after semester. And I remember being in these lab classes and thinking like, this isn't how it really is. Like, I wish that other people could understand that doing science isn't like, there's not a right and a wrong, you know, you, yeah. you have a hypothesis, but then ultimately whatever results you get, um, it's up to you to kind of interpret that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the other problem is that in classes, you learn science as very factual, and it's very memorization based, and it's very, this does this. And the thing that was always 
completely going over my head was that in order to know that fact, someone had created experiments to test it and had, you know, gone through this whole journey to kind of figure out how this thing is working. And my problem in science classes was I didn't really, (laughs) I didn't understand the value of designing a good experiment, like when I was learning the facts. But now when you you grow up into, you know, someone doing their PhD, you really are like, oh, a grad student had to have, you know, you know, grueled over this for five years to figure out that this protein (laughs) activates this protein. And it's taught to you just like off the cuff of like, yep, this protein activates that protein. And, um, but there's also not time to learn about all the experiments and science that went into the facts that we know. But yeah, it's kind of hard to see what science really is just doing, you know, a class, class based degree. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. So this is me plugging um, summer research programs if you are an undergraduate. I did too. And they're great. I don't think I'd be here if I hadn't done them. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so much of everyone can be a scientist, but everyone has to have, you know, access to what science really can be to kind of see it. So yes, do summer programs. Okay. Similarly, so what's your favorite moment of being a scientist? If you have one, what, what feelings were you feeling inside? Uh, is science an emotional thing for you? I guess that would be. This is really this. hard. Um, I think that science is an emotional thing for me. And part of that could just be because I'm a person who puts a lot of value in what I do. Um, as you know, I guess maybe you could gather from me talking about like my various identities, but I, yeah, I just, I find like a lot of personal attachment to what I do. And ultimately like, I'm a, I don't know, I'm a very values-based person. And so I, anything that I'm putting like so much time and energy into is going to be kind of like personal and can be emotional for me. Um, and so I'm trying to reflect on, you know, kind of, my favorite moment, but really, I think it was actually a pretty recent moment. Um, last semester, uh, the lab that I'm in right now is, you know, not brand new in the world, but newer to UNC. Um, and so when I joined my lab, the project that I'm doing, I'm kind of starting from the ground up. Um, I don't have any graduate students that are came before me whose work I'm building off of um you know I'm really doing this from the ground up and that's really hard but really exciting Mm -hmm. um and so I have had kind of a really big aspect of my project that's been in the works since really since I started joining the lab at the end of my first year um and we have been planning this experiment um it's kind of a large sequencing experiment for really like over a year um and it finally got underway this past early fall and then i got my data back um at the end of last semester and so kind of in the last year beginning of this year i've been diving into that um and probably my favorite moment as a scientist was analyzing this data and um, despite the fact that my initial hypothesis was not proven, which is totally okay, um, 
there's something there, you know, like I am seeing meaningful changes in my groups that kind of directly relates to like patient outcomes. Um, and so, yeah, that's probably my favorite moment is knowing, finding out that this study that I'm doing um, seems to have like real implications clinically and being able to, I feel like for one of the first times in my project, really see like the translatability of the work that I'm doing. That um, is, yeah, super exciting. I'm so happy for you. Yeah. So, that's a good day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's probably my favorite moment in recent memory. Um, I'm sure I have, you know, really exciting moments from when I was in undergrad doing various summer programs, but I think this one, this one feels the biggest. Yeah. 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 And I'm wondering if you have anything more to say about, you know, starting a project from the ground up, because that was kind of my journey in grad school as well. And it's definitely exciting and it definitely um, creates a lot of ownership over what you're doing, which I think sometimes grad students don't immediately get because mm -hmm. they're, you know, taking data and running with it, but someone else has kind of conceived of the project right. or the PI is the one that has like this really big idea. And mm -hmm. yeah, so I was put more on a um, really un unstarted, but also open-ended question. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, there's definitely pros and there's definitely cons. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I would say the biggest thing is having ownership over my project from the get go has been incredible. And I feel really lucky that I have PIs who are super supportive and kind of like listen to my input and let me kind of grow independently as a scientist. Um and I really think that there's a lot to be said for how much starting your project from the ground up really forces you to think like a scientist really early on. Um, because ultimately, like when I joined this lab and knew I was going to be starting from the ground up, my PI said, okay, this, you know, this gene is mutated in endometrial cancer. It has a worse prognosis when it's like people have a worse prognosis when it's mutated. And we don't know why. And that's kind of um, where I started. And from there, like every kind of hypothesis and direction that we've gone down has been driven directly by me. Um, mm -hmm. And so I do think that it's really valuable for the grad school experience and for getting a lot out of grad school. But yeah, I'm not going to lie. It's certainly really difficult. Um, yeah. I think the other think thing is it puts you in more of a colleague position with your advisor earlier. Yeah. Whereas if you're working on something that is very close to your advisor's heart and they've really designed the project, it's hard to kind of shake off maybe their plan of where they want it to go or it just might be more specific and when they hand you something and are like figure this out they're kind of trusting you to become the expert in your project um and I've definitely had that experience where I come back and I'm like this is what I've learned about this and this is where I should take the next experiment and I want to test this 
And it feels really good to come up with that by yourself, but it's also (laughs) hard. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, There are a few other grad students in my lab and we all, you know, a few of us joined at the same time and one is um, more junior uh, to the rest of us. And we all have had the same experience of kind of our advisors saying, you know, this is generally the project that you're working on, but then all of us kind of taking it and running with it. And yeah, like you said, um, <laughs> kind of all all four of our projects are going in directions that are kind of expanding beyond the bounds of RPIs, like area of expertise. Um, and so, like you said, when it's really close to your PI's heart. It can be tough to kind of have as much independence, but in our case, like we each are kind of becoming really the expert in this area and even becoming experts in things that our PI's are not in that field at all. And so that's been really cool. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking when we were talking about lab classes and how there's kind of a pre-designated answer to the experiment, the quote-unquote experiment that you're doing. I think it's kind of hard to shake that if you join a lab and your advisor has really um, specific hypotheses that you're testing because in my experience, like 80% of the time, I think we're wrong about what we're (laughs) hypothesizing. And if your advisor is really, well, first of all, if you're not used to, you know, the real science world of like, we really don't know what's going on and we're trying Mm -hmm. to figure it out. um, It can feel like you did something wrong if you're not getting the expected answer. Um, But the other thing, oh, I think it's really a cool part of science that usually the questions you're asking end up taking you somewhere you didn't expect to go. And that can be, I've, I've struggled with that a lot in grad school. Like, it's just really daunting to be like, oh, well now I have to learn this new technique. And that feels, you know, it always feels scary to me when I don't know how to do something. And then I do it one time. I'm like, oh, that wasn't that bad. That's, you know, (laughs) just like everything else I ever do. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm in that situation right now, pretty much looking down the barrel, can't can't deny anymore that I'm going to have to learn how to code (laughs) at least a little (laughs) bit. Um, So yeah, it is daunting, but I don't know. I'm every new skill I think is, is good. Like it's ultimately helping you. Yeah, for sure. I think you, a big, a good practice in science is just being open to where it takes you. Mm -hmm. And something my advisor always says is, um, if you feel like you know what you're doing, you're not doing science. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, if you're not getting out of your comfort zone, you're probably not asking interesting questions or questions that are worth answering. Yeah, Um, that really, I guess one thing I could have mentioned in my identity is that something I have done since I was really, really young um, is dance. Um, And that I, I don't know if I would really consider myself like a dancer, but that was like a huge part of my identity growing up and something that I've tapped back into a little bit in the past year. And in dance, there's the saying when, you know, when you're on the stage performing that if you feel like stupid, that means you're, you look good. Like the dumber you mm-hmm. feel with your facial expressions, then that means you're doing really good and you look great. And so I think it's the same thing. 
Yeah, no, there's like a common theme of like vulnerability, I think, coming out that like, yeah, we all a little bit shy away from vulnerability, but Mm -hmm. we need people in any field or any discipline to be willing to do the vulnerable thing and like figure something out or push the edges of like what we can do. I think there's a, um, there's a theme there. (laughs) Yeah. I also find that, um, especially with women in science, Mm -hmm. um, not just women, everybody, but especially with women in science that I've encountered, I feel like there's a common personality type that I've seen, of you know, really kind of high achieving type A uh, driven. And I would um, identify with that myself. Yeah. You're not, you're not describing me at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think called out. I think that's great, but I do think that being that way, there's definitely the inclination to think that you need to be, you can't do anything wrong. You need to be right. Like if you do something wrong, it's a failing on your part and it speaks to your kind of intelligence overall. And so, yeah, like you said, we're all really scared to be vulnerable because we are really high achieving. And so it's hard to kind of unlearn that, that thing of, if I do something wrong, it means that I'm stupid. Yeah. My, um, I have a new roommate who just moved in and I was talking to her and she said something interesting, like people are driven to study the things that they're bad at. And I thought that was interesting and I've been reflecting on it. And so I'm coming up on the last few months of my PhD and there's this one experiment that I have been trying to do in different versions for the whole time essentially (laughs) and most of the time it has been going awful for me oh good yeah it just doesn't work it's weird it the changing things doesn't you know influence the experiment in the way you would expect and it's actually the thing I'm like the most excited about now that I'm wrapping up my PhD like the main project I was working on I feel so over and now it's yeah. like, I still really want to figure out how this is working because it's made a fool of me <laughs> countless times. And so I really need to leave like on top of it. And I really want to, you know, figure this out because it's made me look stupid so many times. I understand that you're like conquering the beast. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. I have two more questions. The okay, first great um what media have you been consuming recently and I left this very Mm open-ended because I will say this to anyone but you are a tastemaker capital T capital M (laughs) I'll die on this hill um so do you have any recommendations of what we should be what media we should be consuming boy do I um (laughs) yeah as I said if there's one thing about me really truly it is that I am a consumer of media. <laughs> I come from a long line of people who really love to read books and watch TV. <laughs> yes. Um, let me think. So one show that I've been watching that I absolutely love, it's very popular right now, is Abbott Elementary. Um, oh, yeah. And it's a, it's a little kind of workplace sitcom that is available on Hulu and I absolutely love it. It's so funny. I think it's like the best sitcom that's kind of been made since like the golden age of sitcoms in the early 2000s. 
it's um, you heard it here first yeah um we've also been watching this is not really new but we've been watching true detective on hbo um which came out i think between maybe like 2015 and 2019 there's three seasons it's an anthology so every season is different um and it's really good it's just like it's pretty dark kind of dark and twist twisted um but really compelling um so i feel like that's the most tv i've been watching the biggest thing i always have recommendations for is podcasts um yes i'm a huge huge podcast listener um you know all that time in lab and it's just i it's a great opportunity to listen to some podcasts so true so the one that I always recommend to everyone um, is called Normal Gossip. Yes. And <laughs> I love it so much. Um, the host, Kelsey McKinney, just tells a guest kind of a normal story of just like regular people gossip, but it's incredibly funny and I love it, but they're on a break right now because they do the season format, which I totally respect. And so I <laughs> recently just started listening to a podcast that's been filling the normal gossip-sized hole in my heart while they are on break. And it's called Petty Crimes. Okay. Um, and it's two kind of longtime friends. And it, it's kind of a similar thing where essentially one will tell the other like a quote-unquote petty crime um, and it's just like real world kind of everyday silly things that people will do. Um, for example, the first episode is about a girl who's been letting her dog use the bathroom on the roof of the apartment complex. Um, okay, many questions, yeah, but really, I'll, really I'll just go seek out the, the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And then the other person will kind of vote like, is this? Is this just a petty crime or is this a criminal offense? <laughs> I see. I see. Um, and so it's really, it's really interesting and I like it a lot. Um, yeah. So I feel like those are the main things I've been consuming recently. But, you know, if I was given, I could talk about the media I like for truly hours upon hours. Yeah, we'll have to book <laughs> another episode for that. Oh, yeah. Just for I that. Was con- <laughs> I was considering whether I could do a normal gossip format for like a science podcast (laughs) it would not be fun I don't think it'd be fun at all I just would be like this is the result of your experiment what would you do next do you tell your PI or do you (laughs) throw it out and start over (laughs) yeah I always think about these podcasts like normal gossip and petty crimes where it's like everyday people like myself you know could write in but I feel like all of the gossip that I have happening is like very incredibly niche lab, lab gossip that the general public, like there'd be so many layers that would need to be explained to even understand. I understand. Okay. One last question. It's not a trick question. What do you want to be when you grow up? (sighs) And that can be professional, personal, anything Um, open-ended. As cliche as this is going to sound, I guess, first and foremost, um, I want to be a person that, like, helps people, um, ultimately. Um, I I mean that in the kind of broad 
Oh, Suki has joined the podcast recording. Hi, Suki. She has woken up from her afternoon nap. Um, <laughs> but yeah, ultimately, I think on a broad scale, I want to be someone who helps people and somebody who is able to kind of like do good in whatever space that I'm in, um, in kind of every aspect of my life. Um, that's the broadest, but in reality, um, I, to be frank, do not love bench science, (laughs) but I really love science communication and I love stuff like this. I love communicating science to non-scientists. Um, and so I would love to do something in that capacity, um, be someone who helps to communicate science to non-scientists. So I don't have the details ironed out yet, but I want to do totally good. I don't want to communicate. So sounds like I'll be going into science policy, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. It's not so a bad area. area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I also want to, you know, mother several more dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, at one point I realized I was like, I like talking to people about science, but mostly because I like talking to people and science is something I know how to talk about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I recently was having the, okay, you're halfway through your third year. What do you want to do? Conversation with my advisor, which is always just oh so exciting on a Monday morning. Um, I love those Monday morning conversations. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, And he remarked upon, (laughs) we were talking about the possibility of, you know, science policy as a career and, he said, so I guess for context, I'm from a very small rural town in the South. Um, and he said something along the lines of like, you're already so used to explaining higher level, higher level concepts to, you know, lay people like you've been doing that for a really long time. Every time, you know, you just like speak to people in my family or people in my hometown. Um, and he's like, so that if that's something you like, I think you could continue that. And I would definitely love that because not to get too tangential, <laughs> please. but I definitely think there's that thing when you get older, at least for me being from like a small town where you try and kind of reconcile like your kind of like younger identity and your upbringing and then kind of like who you blossom into as an adult and so I think it would be really incredible for me to be able to be in a career where you know I'm speaking with people who are like reminiscent of where like how and where I grew up um and I think that would be really cool and like a nice tribute or ode to my family yeah yeah for sure I was um you might be familiar with this because I heard it on a podcast we also both listened to. <laughs> um, but in the it was in the context of more like religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that there's like an original construction and this mm-hmm. is like in your brain and your identities of like mm-hmm. what furniture your parents kind of 
put in the room for you. And that can be like your family's beliefs and just where you were raised and how you were raised. And so you get, you accumulate these pieces of furniture that are more or less ascribed to you. And then when you get into, I don't know, adolescence and start like really questioning Mm -hmm. who you are within that structure, there's like a deconstruction where you kind of like throw all the furniture out the window because you're like, none of this is what I've chosen for myself. Like, I just want to furnish my room for my own like pleasure and benefit. But then once you like really start to do the reconstruction, you find that, you know, some of the tables and chairs that that were there originally like do still fit into your room and Mm -hmm. do still like play a really important part in how you see yourself. So I'm hearing like that kind of vibe come through and I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I really love that. I think that's very true because I think it's easy when you're from like a small place. It's really kind of like dissimilar to where you are in adulthood. Um, I think it's really easy to be like, well, I'm just I'm a completely different person now. My life's completely different. I am abandoning my roots. Um, And I've definitely, you know, like I feel like gone through phases where I've been like that. But I like when I personally am in a room of like, if I was in a room of 50 Ivy league educated scientists versus a room of 50 people from my hometown, (laughs) I would feel much more comfortable with the people from my hometown, honestly, than the 50 Ivy league educated scientists, because, you know, I mean, you never forget kind of where you're from. And so (laughs) I don't, I don't always feel comfortable in spaces where everyone is like from like super hyper-educated places and is all like hyper-educated and like really, I guess, in that academic bubble constantly. Like that's, yeah, that's not the most comfortable space for me to be in. Yeah, no, I definitely hear that. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. Yeah, of course. Um, Okay, we need to wrap up, but I... I'm loving this conversation. I just want to ask if you have any like pieces of advice that you'd give to a young budding scientist. (laughs) (sighs) Um, I would say to really just like listen to your gut and intuition and not to like, don't do what you think you're supposed to do. Like just be trying to get really in touch with yourself and like what matters to you and what kind of things you like to do. Um, and just try and be like, live as authentically to yourself as you can, because I, I definitely, as I was coming up in science thought I have to go into this particular field or I have to do this kind of thing. And then I feel like once I actually got into grad school and started doing research and kind of have this project that I can, you know, have ownership over, I'm finding that my interests are actually a lot different than I thought that they were because for so long, I feel like I kind of was like suppressing what I actually liked and wanted. Um, And so I would, I definitely would say like, just, be really true to yourself and your interests. Um, and yeah, just find a place to be that feels like you can do what you're most passionate about and be authentic in. 
I love that. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you for having me. Oh, really? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I hope you have a great rest of your Sunday. I hope it gets closer to your perfect Sunday. Thank you. Um, I watched the Grammys tonight, so that's exciting. Okay. I didn't know those were on tonight. I'm very out of touch with pop culture. So thank you for bringing it to my show. You're welcome. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Bye.